everybody. Welcome to another episode of Poem Peeps. This is David Forfaro, and we're really excited today to have our next Poem Peeps roundtable. As you guys may or may not know already, we're going to have Poem Peeps content for you every Tuesday. It's either going to be a podcast or a radiology rounds or high yield imaging case that we're going to post online on our website and on Twitter. Please come to our website, follow us on Twitter or Instagram, and subscribe to all our podcasts, and we'll get you all the content every week. So today is a really special episode for us. We have some fantastic guests. We're going to be talking about PEEP, which is positive end expiratory pressure. As you can tell from our name, Monty and I love PEEP. We love ventilators. We love lungs. We love people who have lungs and people who care for them. And so this episode was something we were thinking about doing right from the beginning. We have a great roundtable of experts here, people with lots of experience in the field, both clinically and doing research in PEEP in acute respiratory distress syndrome. So we're going to dive right in. Monty, how are you doing today? Hey, Dave, doing well. Um, really, uh, as you are, super excited about this episode and can't wait to dive into it. Just want to remind everyone, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the views we express today do not reflect the opinions or policies of our respective employers. Uh, super excited to get started with introductions. And first, I would like to introduce Dr. Roy Brower. Roy is a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, where he served as the medical intensive care unit director for over 33 years and has been one of the pioneers for lung protective ventilation for patients with ARDS. He may or may not remember, but he was uh, one of my first attendings when I was an intern in our medical intensive care unit. So glad you're here today with us, Roy. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing good. Thanks, Monty, and happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me to be part of this group. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We're really excited to have you here. Next, we have Dr. Todd Rice. Todd is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care at Vanderbilt University. He's also the vice president for clinical trial innovation and operations in the Vanderbilt Institute for Clinical and Translational Research. He has done some fantastic research on sepsis, nutrition in the ICU, and COVID-19, and has a lot of experience with ARDS and PEEP titration. Hey, Todd, how are you doing today? Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing great. I'm really looking forward to this, and I suspect I'm going to learn more than I teach, so I'm, I'm excited about this. <laughs> I highly doubt it. We're, Monty and I are here to do most of the learning, so uh, yeah, we'll, that, we'll be the learners for the day. Thanks so much, Todd. I'd like to introduce our third guest today, Dr. Serena Sahatia. Serena is, is an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, who's one of our medical intensive care unit faculty, and whose research focuses on ventilator-induced lung injury in ARDS. Serena was one of my senior residents when I was an intern as well, over seven years ago, and has a special place, I was going to say, has a special place in my heart, but has a spe special place in my lungs. Um, so welcome today, <laughs> Serena. Thanks, Christina. It's really great to be here. You know, PEEP's one of my favorite topics, so I, I can't imagine a, a better time than an hour talking to smart people about it. Finally, we have Elias Baydorf cassis Elias is an assistant professor of medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School, and is also the medical director of the respiratory care at BI. He does research in personalized ventilator approaches in ARDS, ventilator dyssynchrony, and esophageal balloons. And I have to say, on a personal note, everybody at BI, if you have a vent question or a dyssynchrony question, is like, well, let's just ask Elias. You know, we'll have him come by and take a look. So it's really great to have you here. How you doing, Elias? I'm wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, it's such an honor to to be included in this group. And really, I look forward to 
learning um, a lot from everyone here as well and really excited to uh, spend some time discussing one of my favorite topics. Uh, so thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Elias. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started on the discussion. I know everyone is waiting for our experts today and some of the responses to the questions that we have. But as a reminder, we're going to be focusing on ventilator strategies in the acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. And for a refresher for all of those that are listening today, ARDS is a clinical syndrome that was first described in 1967. And over the years, the definition of the syndrome has evolved over time. Most recently in 2011, the Berlin criteria, which most of us probably use, was established in account for various components that define the syndrome, including timing of symptoms, chest imaging findings obtained either through chest x-ray or chest CT, origin of edema, as well as oxygenation. And to go over those briefly, timing, we usually think of ARDS occurring within one week of a known clinical insult or new respiratory symptoms. Chest imaging, as I said, could either be on chest CT or chest X-ray are going to be bilateral opacities, not fully explained by effusions, collapse, or nodules. The origin of edema, I think, is important as it's a non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. And oxygenation, as many of you can, are familiar with, um, can be further stratified into mild, moderate, or severe, depending on what the PaO2 to FiO2 ratio is. Great. Thanks, Monty, for that review. I think it's really helpful to us to go back to basics for everybody. And on that note, Serena, we have a lot of new learners who are out there in the crowd. So just to start with, can you just take us through what is PEEP in general? And why do we use it at all during mechanical ventilation? Yeah, great. Thanks for that question. So PEEP, as you said at the beginning of this, is positive end expiratory pressure. So it is the pressure that remains in the airways at the end of expiration. We think and, and talk about PEEP in, in a couple of different ways. Most commonly, we think and talk about extrinsic or applied PEEP, which is essentially what we set on the ventilator for the machine to provide at the end of a breath. There's also intrinsic PEEP that can happen um, within the airways, almost as a complication of mechanical ventilation as a consequence of air trapping. But I think for today, let's let's focus our attention on extrinsic or applied PEEP from the vents, since that's what we're most interested in, because that's what we affect. Why do we use it? So the main reason we think about using it is when alveoli or lungs are injured, they can have surfactant dysfunction or interstitial edema that causes them to be more prone to collapsing. PEEP in that positive expiratory pressure can actually be used to splint the airways open and the alveoli open at the end of expiration to prevent that collapse. That can improve oxygenation because you're allowing more alveoli to participate in gas exchange. You're improving BQ mismatch. And even more importantly, what I, what I think about is that it can um, reduce the likelihood of ventilator-associated lung injury. So at the end of a breath, if alveoli collapse and then you get a tidal volume, those alveoli may reopen and then you exhale and they collapse again. And that repetitive opening and closing can cause kind of sheer stress on the alveoli themselves. So that's one way that PEEP, by keeping those alveoli open, can help prevent ventilator-induced lung injury. And then the other way it can do is because you have more lung units participating in ventilation, you're less likely to have over distension injury because your tidal volume is now distributed over more parts of the lung. So many reasons to, to use PEEP, improving oxygenation, reducing ventilator-induced lung injury. 
that is, is an amazing review and some really high yield things for our learners. You know, we have our intrinsic PEEP if we're not able to fully exhale, that can just be a part of the lung pathology that's going on with the patient and our extrinsic PEEP, what we're controlling with the ventilator, which we're gonna talk all about today. And then I think there's just some great points about using it to sort of protect our injured lungs. I have one just follow up and it's just a question I feel like that comes up all the time with learners. We have some patients who come in who don't have injured lungs at all. They go in for anesthesia, they're intubated, and inevitably they're on a PEEP of five. You turn them in, intubate, PEEP of five. So where does that five come from? Is that a magic number that we're talking about, or is it something that we sort of just made up over time? That's a great question. It's interesting because there are some countries and other places that don't use a PEEP of five that will use kind of less than a PEEP of five. You know, we think about the PEEP of five as providing some kind of physiologic level of PEEP. When you're off the ventilator, your physiologic level of PEEP is zero because it's equivalent to atmospheric pressure. So I, I'm actually really interested to hear what Roy and, and Todd and Elias have to say about this. That magic number of five, I think, was somewhat arbitrary. Yeah, I love these things in medicine that sort of just come up and then become dogma. And, and we, we, never, we often don't think about where they come from. Roy, I think you were going to comment. Uh, thanks, David. I, I'd like to get back to the notion that Serena raised that there is a physiologic PEEP. Um, I think that that idea might have come out of the operating room where anesthesiologists know that when the chest wall is open, they have to apply a PEEP of five in order to prevent the lungs from shriveling up during exhalation. Hmm. And if they apply a PEEP of about five, the lungs appear to be at a normal FRC. So with the chest wall open, a PEEP of five is physiologic. But when the chest wall is closed, pleural pressure is minus five on average. So the physiologic PEEP applied to the airway opening is zero. Hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. I like that we, we took this one concept that we have from open heart surgery in the OR and then applied it sort of more broadly. Yeah, Elias, go ahead. I think what the concept here is, is getting at, which we'll probably talk about in more detail later, is this concept of the pressure across the lung, the transpulmonary pressure is what's um, most important here. And when the chest wall is open and the pleural pressure is zero and you apply uh, airway pressure of five centimeters of water, you have a transpulmonary pressure that is five centimeters of water across the lungs. If you have a pleural pressure of negative five, then you get that same um, transpulmonary pressure of five centimeters of water. So the idea is that regardless of what the applied pressure is at the airway, the most important pressures are the transpulmonary pressures, the pressures across the lung. Roy and Elias, question for you. If you have a patient with a closed chest who is under neuromuscular blockade, do they still have a pleural pressure of negative five? First, the idea that pleural pressure is minus five, that's an average value in a patient who's sitting upright. You know, near the top of the lung, the pleural pressure is more negative, and near the bottom of the lung, it's less negative. When you go supine, you know, there's some shifting around of pleural pressures. I don't know exactly what it would be supine under neuromuscular blockade, but I think it would be in the in the low negative range on average. Uh, I'd like to um, get back to David's original question here. Why why does everybody get a PEEP of five? It's not physiologic. I, I, I like my patients who don't have acute lung injury or ARDS, uh, or if they, even if they don't have any respiratory disease other than they're, that they're not breathing, perhaps from a drug overdose, I give them a PEEP of five in order to prevent some atelectasis. Every week we see a dozen or more patients who come in uh, and the initial chest x-ray shows a crisp left hemidiaphragm. 
and on the next day with them supine with an endotracheal tube in place, you don't see that left hemidiaphragm because they've collapsed it, the left, the, the, the left lower lobe. I think there's a lesser degree of atelectasis in the right lower lobe. It's not, a, not so radiographically apparent. But by applying some PEEP, it'll prevent some of that atelectasis. Not all of it, but some of it. You know, when you go supine, the, uh, the heart moves back by two centimeters. And the, and the left hemidiaphragm moves up by two centimeters. So the left lower lobe gets pinched. And by applying five of PEEP, we can maintain some of the patency. Elias, did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah, so I think that's I, I think there's even some patients that don't have ARDS and abnormal lungs where you actually require even higher levels of people than five centimeters of water as well. And that can be secondary to body habitus issues or potentially other factors as well. You know, maybe they have ascites or something else going on in their abdomen. And in those cases, it may be beneficial for the patient to actually expedite recovery and weaning time to actually apply a higher level of PEEP while they're mechanically ventilated to offset those additional compressing forces. Oftentimes only in the, in the acute setting, this is required, and then you can rapidly wean as patients are um, moving towards extubation. But it's exactly that idea to keep the lungs from collapsing, and they have a propensity to collapse, especially when supine and, and, and undergoing passive ventilation. Uh, this is an amazing discussion already. And I had a little bet with myself about how what timing it would be before certain concepts came up. So transpulmonary pressure came up before 20 minutes and I and I won that bet. But uh, our learners out there can also look in our show notes. We'll have some examples of that left hemidiaphragm going away that Dr. Brower talked about and that I remember from actually rounds and I try to point out. And we'll put up some diagrams about transpulmonary pressure because I think that can be a really tricky topic. It's very important to what we're talking about today, and it's really important to understand. So before we dive into PEEP in ARDS, I think it's really important that we nail this concept of transpulmonary pressure. Elias, I know you do a lot of work with esophageal balloons, which is a way clinically to try to measure transpulmonary pressure. Can you tell us a little bit more about what transpulmonary pressure is and the role of esophageal balloons in determining it and titrating PEEP? Uh, thanks. Thanks for the question, David. So the idea behind the transpulmonary pressure is understanding what the pressures uh, that are actually across the lung um, are. And so the ventilator is measuring airway pressures with each breath. And so the airway pressures that are being measured are a combination of factors that are being measured from the chest wall as well as the lungs. And so when we're thinking about what injury um, and what factors are affecting the lungs, we really don't care as much about the chest wall itself, even though it's a pretty large amount of what we're actually measuring. And so using esophageal manometry allows us to isolate the components of the entire respiratory system, which are the chest wall and the lungs. And so by measuring the esophageal uh, pressures, you can get an estimate for the pleural pressures. And by measuring the pleural pressures, you're essentially able to measure what the component of the chest wall is on the mechanics that you're measuring with the ventilator. And this allows you to calculate what's called the transpulmonary pressure. The transpulmonary pressure is calculated as the airway pressure minus the pleural pressure estimated by the esophageal pressure. All right. And so by measuring this, you're essentially getting the transmural pressures across the entire lung. And why this is important is we can um, use this in order to set our positive end expiratory pressure. So, for example, let's say I have myself and I'm laying here and a, an elephant sits on my chest. We can all imagine what's going to happen to my lungs. My lung volumes are going to decrease. 
but my lungs themselves are the same. So this is all because of extrinsic pleural pressure increase from that elephant sitting on my chest. And you can imagine that elephant sitting on the chest clinically is obesity or ascites or pancreatitis or trauma of some sort that causes that increased pleural pressure, which then collapses the lung. So the idea behind measuring esophageal manometry is I can actually measure the exact amount of increased pleural pressure that's being pushed on, that's pushing on the lungs, and then counter that with my level of PEEP that I'm applying. So if that elephant sitting on my chest is collapsing the lungs by increasing the, the pleural pressures by 15 centimeters of water, I can then directly measure that and counter that by applying a PEEP of 15 centimeters of water. That's great. I think this is such like a, a complex physiology topic. It's just great to hear about, hear more detail and think about. And the way I think about it, and just sort of confirm I have it right, is basically when we're just using the ventilator, we can only think of the whole respiratory system together, the lungs and the chest wall together. But if we make a model for it, say the lungs are a balloon and the chest wall is a rubber band around that balloon, an esophageal manometry allows us to think about those two components separately and titrate our pressures correctly for those. Is that about right? Yeah, that's a that's a nice way of thinking about it. I think there you can kind of create a conceptual model in a couple of different ways. That's a, a nice simplified approach, I think, which might help uh, make this a bit more accessible for people who are just learning about the application of esophageal manometry. Yeah, there's almost always so much more nuance and detail to it. And, you know, getting these core concepts is really fantastic. Wow, we've talked about so much already. We've had a great review of PEEP in all patients on the ventilator. We've talked about physiologic PEEP, as well as transpulmonary pressure and a great analogy that Firth brought up. So Roy, why do we care about PEEP and ARDS? And what are some positive effects as well as any potential harms? We care about PEEP and ARDS because it has, PEEP can have beneficial effects and also detrimental effects. And we wanna strike the right balance between those two groups of effects. Serena mentioned several beneficial effects. One is that we can maintain some aeration of the lung with PEEP that in some regions of lung that would otherwise collapse, which would worsen shunt. With reduced shunt, we can improve arterial oxygenation and use a lower fraction of inspired oxygen, perhaps reduce the risk of oxygen toxicity. Another benefit is to prevent the problem of regions of lung that are unstable for a lack of surfactant from closing and reopening with every cycle. This is mechanically injurious and causes ventilator-induced lung injury from what we sometimes call atelect trauma. So there's a second benefit of PEEP. And a third benefit is by improving, increasing the volume of aerated lung, it improves the efficiency of CO2 clearance it effectively reduces physiologic dead space. So those are the beneficial effects of PEEP. But there are detrimental effects of, of PEEP. One is that PEEP forces all the pressures in the chest to rise, including right atrial pressure, which is at the downstream end of the systemic circulation. So venous return will fall and cardiac output will fall. And then there may be inadequate perfusion to the systemic circulation if you use too much PEEP. Another detrimental effect of PEEP is that it increases pulmonary vascular resistance by squeezing on those septal capillaries. This will increase right ventricular afterload, making it harder for the right ventricle to keep blood moving through the pulmonary circulation. 
Also, if you use too much PEEP, pressures and volumes during inspiration will be high and there's the risk of barotrauma. So numerous benefits and numerous detrimental effects of PEEP. That's why we care about it in ARDS. We're trying to strike the perfect balance between beneficial effects on the one hand and avoiding the detrimental effects on the other. Thanks so much, Roy. So I think you did a great synopsis of kind of both beneficial and harmful um, effects of PEEP in ARDS. So Todd, I'm gonna go ahead and go to you next, kind of from your perspective and your, and your clinical practice in trying to optimize PEEP, what parameters do you monitor to determine if the PEEP level is effective or if one amount of PEEP is better than another? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I, I think part of the reason that many of us have a genuine interest in PEEP is because to me, it's the most dynamic aspect of mechanical ventilation that I do. Uh, and, you know, often when the resident says, why is Dr. Rice in there playing with the ventilator? It's because Dr. Rice is trying to figure out what he should be doing with the PEEP. And it changes from the patient standpoint. And so I'm trying to balance uh, an oxygenation, which PEEP is going to help me with, with a pressure, an increased pressure in the lungs, barotrauma, over distension of areas of the lung that maybe aren't as diseased as other areas, and the detrimental effects that Roy talked about that PEEP can cause. And I think it's important to understand that the beneficial and detrimental effects are not necessarily uh, entirely upon the whole lung, but they may occur in a regional manner and in a localized manner. So it could be that you've overdistended part of the lung while you're trying to open up other parts of the lung to improve oxygenation. And so that's what I'm trying to balance with PEEP. And as I'm playing with the ventilator and trying to figure out the optimal PEEP, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what level of PEEP can I use that optimizes oxygenation and the benefits of it, of PEEP, but also uh, minimizes overdistension, uh, potential risk for barotrauma, potential risk for decreased cardiac output, uh, and the bad effects of PEEP. That's great, Todd. And I feel like I'm always in there and the residents are always asking that question. It's like, what are you looking at? And it, you think you summarize it really well. It's like we have this crude tool to look at the lungs that are heterogeneous in ARDS. We're trying to balance these positives and negatives. And so we're looking at all, all sorts of factors. And it's, uh, I think, one of the most fun parts of the job, but a, a challenging part as well. Uh, Roy, I want to go back to you. You know, Todd was mentioning factors we're looking at. We're balancing the oxygenation and looking to avoid some of those harmful effects. You've, of course, been a key part in describing something that I think we look at a lot now, which is driving pressure. And I was wondering if you could talk about driving pressure and how you use it when you're uh, titrating PEEP. Uh, driving pressure, let's define it first just to make sure we're on the same page. Driving pressure is the difference between the inspiratory plateau pressure and the PEEP. So if, if the plateau pressure were 25 and the PEEP was 10, the driving pressure is 15. The normal driving pressure, like if I were to intubate you, David, and give you a tidal volume starting from a PEEP of zero, which is physiologic. Yeah, sign me up, by the way. We can do this experiment as part of poem peeps if you want. <laughs> <laughs> your plateau pressure would be four or five, and your driving pressure would be four or five. So to put driving pressures in context, driving pressure of 15 is elevated from normal. There's a study in the New England Journal that was a meta-analysis of nine different clinical trials conducted on an individual patient level. 
focusing on the issues driving pressure a predictor of outcome? The answer was yes, it was a strong predictor of outcome. Um, and then there was a so-called mediation analysis that strongly suggested that driving pressure is not just a correlate of outcome, but is a mediator of the outcome. If, if you do something to the ventilator and the driving pressure increases, um, it increases the risk of, of death. So there are a few things you can do to alter driving pressure. The most direct thing you can do is decrease the tidal volume, change the tidal volume. The driving pressure will change in the same direction. But you can also adjust PEEP, and that sometimes gives you a gratifying change in driving pressure, and sometimes it gives you a worse driving pressure. Um, and the only way to know what it's going to do is to adjust the PEEP from where you are right now and see what happens. Thanks so much, Roy. That was a great way to get us all on the same page for driving pressure. And I'll admittedly say I am not the best at equations, but I think the driving pressure equation is a pretty easy one to remember, as you mentioned. You know, the definition, as you said, is plateau pressure minus the PEEP. So I think we're all in good shape, and that's one that hopefully many of us can remember. And Serena, I want to go to you next, though. I know that you published a pilot study looking at PEEP titration and the impact that it had on driving pressure. I'm sure every one of us here today is really interested in hearing about the lessons that you learned from that study. And what did you apply to your clinical practice? I was going to let Todd go first. He has his hand raised. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, all I was going to say in this was, um, and Roy won't remember this, but one of the privileges that I have in a position that I'm in is I get to spend time in a room at conferences with people like Serena, Elias, and Roy. And at one of these conferences, long before uh, Dr. Amato published that New England Journal article, Roy told me that the way he had gotten to optimize PEEP was is that he would do a plateau pressure measurement, turn up the PEEP, and see how much the plateau changed. And if the plateau changed less than you turned up your PEEP, you had recruited long. And if it changed more than you had turned up your PEEP, uh, you had overdistended the lung. And even a small brain person like myself could figure out that uh, at the bedside. And so I was doing that. And then Marcelo Amato published the driving pressure. And I'm like, oh, they actually put a name to the thing that Roy taught me in a room sitting at, a, at the corner of a table on how to, how to dial in PEEP. So, you know, kudos to Roy, who was doing this and describing it to people like me uh, long before it was published in the New England Journal. That was nice, Todd. Thank you. Yeah, lots of things that Roy taught me definitely uh, made me look good later too. So <laughs> I can attest that same that same phenomenon. Go I ahead, think that's Serena. the case for that's the case for all of us, right? <laughs> Roy gave an excellent description of what driving pressure is and and kind of how you mathematically calculate it. Um, I, when you're titrating PEEP to driving pressures, it's important to to remember that the concept of driving pressure comes from the compliance of the respiratory system equation. Um, and so rearranging that kind of change in volume over change in pressure is equivalent to your compliance of the respiratory system. We know that the driving pressure, which is the change in pressure, will be equivalent to the tidal volume divided by the compliance of the respiratory system. It's the only equation I'm going to throw out there. But as Roy said, you can either change driving pressure by lowering the tidal volume or by affecting compliance. And you affect compliance by recruiting more lung. And as we talked about kind of at the beginning of this, PEEP is really good for recruiting lung, um, unless it's not, and you don't actually open up more lung units. 
um, in which case it just over distends the lung that was already open. Um, so just like Roy said, when, when you're titrating PEEP to, to driving pressure, you increase the PEEP, see what the plateau pressure does. If your driving pressure goes up, you've probably not recruited lung, you're over distending lung. Um, and that's not good because we know driving pressure is associated with mortality. If you increase PEEP and your driving pressure goes down, then you've probably recruited some lung. So Roy and I did a study together uh, uh, when I was starting my research years and fellowship um, that really sought to one, see if it was feasible to decrease driving pressure by titrating PEEP, and two, to understand if the how quickly changes in driving pressure occurred and if they were sustainable. Um, so we did exactly what Todd and Roy had been doing clinically, was we went to the bedside and we changed the, increased the PEEP up until the driving pressure went up and then changed the PEEP uh, in small steps downwards until the driving pressure went down and found the PEEP that was associated with the smallest driving pressure. And then we measured at different time points over the next 30 minutes to see if driving pressure reached an equilibrium and how long it, it sustained. And the two things that I, I really took away from doing this study was one, the amount that you can change driving pressure by titrating PEEP is variable in, in all ARDS patients. Um, so with some patients, we got a substantial decrease in driving pressure by optimizing PEEP. And in some patients, we got very little change in driving pressure by optimizing PEEP. And those are maybe people who would have been better candidates for decreasing tidal volume if the ultimate outcome is to, to really lower your driving pressure because that's the variable affected with more, uh, associated with mortality. The second thing I took away, which I think is really important uh, as we um, think about how we optimize PEEP, is that we started all of these patients from a baseline of using the ARDS network PEEP FiO2 table, the lower PEEP FiO2 table. And in a third of patients, we had to decrease the PEEP from the ARDS network low PEEP FiO2 table in order to optimize their, their driving pressure. So that meant that even starting from what we consider a lower PEEP, they were already potentially over distended. Um, and so there, there's a lot of talk in the critical care community and a lot of interest in this concept of higher PEEP to open up the lung. Um, but we, we know that that may not be beneficial for all of our patients, especially if they're not actually opening up the lung in, in response to those higher pressures. That's really great. Uh, Elias, we're going to go to you in one second. Uh, I think the one thing I also want to take from those key points too is I, I think it takes also some time to see these effects, which I think is really helpful to remember. I feel like a lot of times I uh, come have a resident go into a room. They said that they changed the, the PEEP. They came out two minutes later and said the driving pressure didn't go up when I increased the PEEP. And so I'm on the optimal settings. And, you know, I think it takes some time to recruit lung and to see these effects. So a really all really helpful points. Thanks for pointing them out. Elias, go ahead. Um, yeah, so I think that's a, a couple points. One is that the, the time it takes is actually really important. There was a, a lovely study that looked at incrementally increasing PEEP versus decrementally decreasing PEEP. And the time to equilibration was dramatically longer when PEEP was increased. It took up to 60 minutes for, for to, to reach a full equilibration when increasing PEEP versus only five minutes at each level. And so I think that speaks to this idea that if we're doing a 
decremental PEEP study where you slowly decrease the PEEP from a high level and measure the changes in compliance and driving pressure at each level. If you don't wait for long enough at each, at each point, you may actually um, overshoot and lower the PEEP to a, a lower level than what is optimal uh, if you haven't actually allowed for the equilibration time. That may not always be possible at, at all PEEP levels because of you know, if you start at very high peak levels, you may be getting some of the complications with it, so you may have to lower it sooner. But it's an important point. The other is this idea of the sort of U-shaped curve, which I think we we see in these physiological concepts a lot, where in in acute ARDS and sort of recruitable ARDS, you tend to see this relative U-shaped curve where you have worsened driving pressure at high peak and worsened driving pressure at low peak for different reasons. At high peep, it's because you're overdescending, and at low peep, because you get collapse, and then you have a potentially optimal zone in the middle. And that kind of shifts over time, oftentimes, where you get less of this U-shaped curve as uh, time progresses, and it becomes a little more linear, and you get less benefit from higher peep in those patients. So I think the key is that there's a lot of variability on, on patients, and it's hard to necessarily predict a priori without actually empirically testing it, which speaks to the need to actually be comfortable with techniques for empirically testing this. One last thing I was going to say was there was also another another reanalysis of, of ARDSnet data that used a, a Bayesian approach to actually compare the effects of high tidal volumes versus low tidal volumes based upon the baseline uh, lung elastance, which was a study done by uh, Ewan Gallagher and, and colleagues in Toronto. And it essentially showed this concept, um, but even took it a step further beyond um, a cross-sectional mediation analysis to actually looking at um, a little bit more causality by looking at the effect of this randomization to high and low tidal volume strategies. And it, again, reiterated this idea that this effect was probably mediated by the driving pressure, where the, um, where uh, lowering driving pressure really benefited the patients with the stiffer lungs in particular. Um, and this was done primarily through affecting the tidal volume. So I do think that even though we are talking about PEEP, that it is important to understand that the tidal volume effects probably are, are more dominant overall on, on driving pressure effects overall. Yeah, that's a great point. Thanks for, thanks for pointing it out. I think it's so hard in ARDS, especially for people who are learning and managing it because all these factors play in together. And we talk about titrating one of them, adjusting PEEP or adjusting tidal volume, but they, they have this very complex interplay that we always have to keep in mind. Eliza, I want to follow up, have a follow-up question with you. We've now hit on a couple different methods for titrating PEEP in the ICU. Serena mentioned, you know, the ARDS tables that we had, you know, to just sort of guide us and what PEEP to use, a low, a low PEEP table and a high PEEP table. We talked about trying to optimize driving pressure through adjusting PEEP and recruiting lung, and then also thinking about the tidal volume the patients have. Are there any other techniques that you use? And, and namely, I know you do a lot of work with esophageal balloons. Can you tell us about those and, and how they work to help us titrate? Sure. Uh, thank, thanks for the question. So I think the first thing I would like to say is that there's no evidence that any one PEEP titration strategy is better than another. And I think that's really important to say up front. And one of the most important aspects of being of providing good care for your patients is also understanding what you have available in your ICU and what the comfort level of the clinicians around you um, is with different techniques. And so I learned my favorite technique was the decremental PEEP strategy. And that's still what I carry with me to all my intensive care units, regardless of whether whether we have esophageal manometry or pressure volume loops. Depending on where you go, it may be a stress index measurement. Some places uh, have electrical impedance tomography um, or do other imaging-guided techniques. 
Um, and I, I think the key thing from this is that there isn't a single best way of doing it. What I do think is important, though, is is having an empiric physiological approach for patients where we don't apply a one-size-fits-all approach for everybody. And so, um, again, I think depending on where you go, that could involve multiple different strategies. Um, the decremental PEEP is, I think, a wonderful technique that everybody should learn who's in the intensive care unit because all it takes is your time at the bedside and a little bit of patience and slowly decreasing. Uh, you start at a high level of PEEP and you slowly decrease the level of PEEP. You can make a table on uh, on the whiteboard and, and actually monitor in real time as you affect the driving pressure and compliance levels with each change. Uh, you monitor the, sat the saturation values and the blood pressure at each value, and then you can determine the sort of optimal range of, of PEEPs for a patient. Um, uh, we use at Beth Israel esophageal manometry. Um, esophageal manometry is um, a wonderful tool for those places that have it, but it's also not widely accessible for a lot of sites. Um, so uh, because of the lack of generalizability, I think esophageal manometry still remains a relatively niche um, application uh, with the majority of intensive care units that uh, not having this as a, a tool to use. Uh, that being said, if you do have it as a tool to use, it can be very fast and easy to, to obtain information um, and adjust your, your levels of PEEP in response to the values that you're um, measuring with the, with the balloon. Todd, go ahead. Um, I actually have a question for uh, everybody on the panel, um, which is, is that uh, now starting to emerge are these reports of using abdominal compression to try and figure out if the patient has an overdistension. It's not all PEEP. Some of it is tidal volume. As people may know, I'm an associate editor at CHEST, and when that manuscript first came into CHEST, uh, I kind of thought it was bogus, to be honest with you. But I also recognize that there are lots of people that have way more pulmonary physiology knowledge than I do. So I sent it to those people who told me they thought it was real. Uh, and we move forward with this concept. And so people who haven't read the manuscript, um, it's simply a simple report that during COVID specifically, uh, people were finding patients that when you applied abdominal pressure to the patient, their airway pressures actually went down instead of as we expected them to, to go up. Uh, and the concept is, is that they're overdistended, that abdominal pressure under puts them back from the overdistension towards normal lung uh, physiology and their pressures go down. Uh, it's since now been reported in a couple other of episodes. And I have to admit that I'm kind of doing some of it at the bedside is uh, I never thought as a, as a pulmonologist, I would be pushing on so many abdomens, but I am um, to try and see, uh, you know, am, am I potentially uh, overdistending these? And I don't know if this is something that, uh, I should stop doing, or if other people think there may be merit in it. Yeah, what does everyone think? Um, so I, th I, th I think you're referring to the work that was done out of out of the Mayo that was reported, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah, and I think the, yeah, the same group has also looked at the same pushes in in the prone position too, and found similar results as well. Um, I think the concept of, is is very similar to the idea of of some of the physiology that you get with with proning, or you know when we apply saline bags to the chest, interior chest as well, this sort of anterior um, chest wall compression that you can do. Um, the idea is to homogenize the, the pleural pressures and potentially change the distribution of ventilation and, uh, and improve the distribution, but it also, it's more complicated than that also, and potentially in, in those patients, you're simply just preventing over distension from the PEEP that's being applied as well. And that's my major 
um, issue with that technique is that in some cases, it may just be telling you that your peep levels are too high and that you simply just need to lower the peep levels. Um, and I think there's other ways of determining that other than um, applying a pressure to uh, to the patient, simply doing an empiric um, uh, test with a decremental peep, for example, might give you that same information without having to actually apply um, the pressure. Uh, but I'm not sure if that's other people's experience as well. Well, I've seen this report and um, still wrapping my brain around it. I think, um, you know, to push on the abdomen and raise pleural pressure and yet see a decrease in airway pressure, sounds like we're getting something for nothing. Um, I think there must be a, a very unusual position on the pressure volume relationship. I think it's theoretically possible. I also think you probably don't have to push on the abdomen to know the patient's hyperinflated because the airway pressure time graph shows an increasing slope during inspiration that, you know, the stress index is um, greater than one. So that tells you there's hyperinflation. Um, it's a very interesting observation. Um, and I think there's going to be less here than meets the eye. That's my initial impression. <laughs> I like that. They, uh, I, this is a great point that Roy just put out there, you know, for everybody, we've talked about a couple of things now, you know, ARDS tables, we talked about the decremental peep, we talked about driving pressures and esophageal balloons. And then Roy touched on our, so another method is our stress index. So we'll uh, post some pictures of how you can look at stress index for a patient who's ventilated and think about if they're over distended or under, under distended, but looking at the inflection of uh, as you're delivering your volume, what the pressures do in the airways. Thanks, Dave. I do want to go um, next. I have a follow-up question for you, Todd. Um, we talked about the variability in the PEEP approach. And I think uh, one of the great things about, about this forum right now is that we're all at different institutions and we have different approaches to things. And as, as we're moving, as a field of medicine moves towards personalized medicine, personalized ventilator approaches, do you have specific patient factors that influence which method you tend to use? I uh, am of the belief that there probably is an optimal PEEP for every patient and that we are just not smart enough to actually have figured out what that optimal PEEP is. It's different for each patient uh, and we just aren't smart enough to have figured it out yet. I try and optimize it for patients. I think it's pretty clear there's some that we, at least I feel like I know, for example, the obese, morbidly obese patient probably needs more PEEP uh, than the the you know underweight or normal weight patient. And so I use some of those patient characteristics to guide what I'm at. So the first thing I do is I let, after we innovate the patient, I let the respiratory therapist, we actually use, as Serena said, the the ARDSNET low PEEP strategy as our protocol in the unit. Patient will take a couple hours, but then they'll settle out on an FiO2 and PEEP. And then at that point, I can go back into the room and play and try and figure out uh, if their PEEP needs to be at a different level. If they're obese, you know, I'll increase the PEEP right away. If they have bad ARDS, I'll increase the PEEP right away. If they're a trauma patient, I actually tend to use higher PEEP. Uh, I think the trauma patient may be somebody who actually responds to a higher PEEP. Uh, trauma patient with lung injury, not with, you know, a head injury that's just ventilated because of because of a, a, a neuro problem. Other than that, it's a lot of uh, tweaking and trying and watching pressures and, you know, trying to figure out what uh, settles in at the best spot. 
I, I just wanted to highlight one thing that Todd said, which is that the, the optimal PEEP level probably certainly differs between patients, um, but also differs based on time and time course. So the optimal PEEP on day one may not be the optimal PEEP on, on day two or even the night of day one. And I think that's a point that often gets lost, you know, after I spend an hour or two in the room playing with the ventilator and then leave everyone kind of assumes that's the PEEP they should be on for the rest of the time they're on the ventilator. And so I think kind of frequent reassessments is, is really important based on how your patient's evolving and how their lung injury is evolving. The second point I want to make, which I think it's great to kind of hear Todd say that the ARDS network lower PEEP FAO2 table is the default in his unit. That's certainly the default in our unit. And I have as Elias said, no PEEP strategy has ever been proven to be better than another PEEP strategy. And certainly the, the ArtsNet low PEEP FIO2 table is usually the control strategy. So nothing's ever been proven to be better than that. Although I, I fully believe in, in personalization of, of PEEP levels, I think one thing the last year and a half or two years has demonstrated is that the benefit of a clear protocol that inexperienced users can use when you have seven ICUs full of ARDS patients is not something to be minimized, right? Being able to roll out the ArtsNet PEEPFAO2 table to help manage the vent, de-escalate and escalate vent settings is, is really important in, in current time. Yeah, totally. Having some guidelines and protocols to fall back on. And we think we've all seen the importance of that. But also to remember, like you said, it's not, nothing is set it and forget it. Um, so Elias and then Serena both said, and I agree, that no PEEP strategy has been proven superior to any other um, in relation to improving clinical outcomes. But one PEEP strategy has been proven to be inferior, and that is that very aggressive approach, the open lung approach is used in the ART trial published in the JAMA in 2017. You know, those very aggressive recruitment maneuvers and the aggressive detrimental PEEP trial resulted in some circulatory collapse and, and overall worse clinical outcomes. So I would avoid that. And I think it's also interesting to recognize this in relation to where, how did we get started with the open lung approach? I think it was Burkhart Lachman who in a two page editorial, um, extolled the virtues of recruiting the lung and keeping it open. And that idea has seduced a lot of people over the last 30 years, and they just can't put the idea aside. One last thought, you know, we're calling this table that we use in my ICU and in Todd's ICU, the lower PEEP table. You know, higher and lower is all relative. We called it the lower PEEP table because in the alveoli trial, we had a higher PEEP table. But in fact, in, in our studies in ARDS network, and I think in uh, Bellany's uh, lung safe study, before getting randomized into a clinical trial, people in general are on lower PEEP than they get on the lower PEEP table. In, in the title IM trial and in the PEEP trial, when people were randomized into those studies to get onto the lower PEEP table, on average, their PEEPs were raised. So the lower PEEP table is really a higher PEEP table compared to usual care. I think it's a great way to get started. I agree that PEEPs must be individualized, considering factors such as body weight, 
um, age, you know, older people are more susceptible to oxygen toxicity and so on. But the, but the, the lower PEEP table is as good a way to get started as any. And once the patient is on it, things move right along. In our unit, nurses and therapists can adjust PEEP and FiO2 when the O2 set deviates from the target range. So we make progress at a, at a rapid rate and it works. Yeah, I think both Serena and Roy commented about the importance of a protocol and um, starting with a protocol. And it always takes me back to my mentor who said, you know, the ideal situation that we would all love to have is Serena or Elias or Roy sitting at our ventilator bedside when we're at the bedside. Uh, but that's not going to happen most places and most of the time. And in those situations where that can't happen, give me a protocol that tells me what the best thing that we know is at the time and let somebody run that protocol in the care of me or my loved one or our patients. Uh, and I think, you know, that's what Roy was emphasizing is, is that uh, we don't know if lower protocol or higher protocol is potentially better, but they certainly are a protocol that make physiologic sense and uh, actually allow a patient to progress and get better and wean and all of those things. And putting somebody on that protocol, therefore, is, you know, it should be at least the default and then if you have an expert like one of the people on this panel at your institution that can, you know, try and tweak, that's fine. But even without that, you can provide good care with that protocol. One of my mentors here in Boston is um, a gentleman named, named Taylor Thompson, and he always kind of reiterated to us in our training was that the RSN tables are not a static table, that they are designed to be dynamic. And that's actually an important concept, too, is that you, do, you don't just set it and forget it. You don't find FiO2 in the PEEP and leave it at that. It's an adjustment process where you find an FiO2, match the PEEP, and then you see that the oxygenation improves. You adjust the FiO2. You then can reduce the PEEP, right? And so the, the table itself actually is not a – it's much more dynamic than I think people realize when used um, correctly. And in a way, actually has a lot, of, a lot more overlap, I think, with some of the physiological PEEP titration strategies than we, than we realize. And so I, I think my love of physiological PEEP titration strategies, I'm not actually saying anything negative about the ARDSnet PEEP tables. I think these are actually a wonderful protocolized approach for patients that do provide some individualization as well for patients. Um, I do think that there's patients, though, that we've all seen who require PEEP that falls outside of those tables ranges and having the flexibility to understand when you see one of those patients, whether it's the trauma patient that Todd mentioned or the morbidly obese patient or patients who, who you think are going are gonna to deviate from this. I think it's nice to have uh, some of these other approaches that you can reach for. And whatever your site is most comfortable with with these approaches, I think is probably the best approach. That's great. Elias, as, as a follow-up question to that, you know, I know that you are part of the EPVent2 study that didn't show a mortality benefit for all cumbers with esophageal balloons and ARDS, but that there was also a recent reanalysis saying that there probably were some patients who may have had a benefit of it, or at least showed some granular picture. You talk about some of these patients who are going to require some careful titration. Are there key takeaways from that and key patients that you think that we should think about some of these other methods when we approach them? Yeah, so I think, um, so the just to reiterate what David was mentioning, so the EPVent2 was a, a multi-center study, uh, 200 patients that looked at high PEEP uh, control group, high PEEP ARDSNET table control group versus esophageal balloon guided therapy, where they used actually a transpulmonary pressure FiO2 table, where it actually a aimed for an end expiratory transpulmonary pressure at higher levels with um, higher FiO2 requirements. 
And there was no difference between mortality, um, a composite outcome of mortality and ventilator-free days between the two groups. Um, so this was a, a negative study. The reanalysis that we did was, um, you know, take it with a grain of salt if you wish, because it's, a, it's just that it's a reanalysis, but it had some interesting uh, ideas that I think emerged from it. One was that this idea of disease attributable risk, meaning we, we looked at the groups and we said, okay, if patients are dying from their sepsis, their shock, and we are ha- when we have an intervention that is focused on the ARDS, are we actually leading to any real benefit by having intervention in these patients? So when we looked at this based and we split these patients based upon Apache score and SOFA score, we indeed found that the the intervention group actually uh, showed improved um, mortality with the lower SOFA score group and lower Apache score group. The other thing that which I think is even more important was this idea of this competing risk between um, adelect trauma and overdistension. And so we've talked about this sort of sweet spot multiple times, this U-shaped curve. And this, and we had the same idea for transpulmonary pressure as well, that if we aim for an end expiratory transpulmonary pressure that is in this sweet spot, which we estimated between being plus, plus two and negative two, right around zero, that we could balance these two competing effects of adelect trauma and overdistension. And when we reanalyzed the entire population based upon this, we actually found the same idea that the, those patients who were in that sweet spot had improved mortality compared to patients who were either un, uh, underpeeped or overpeeped. Um, I think the most important takeaway for me, though, is that, is that I think it requires a more integrative approach overall, is meaning that we can't just set PEEP in isolation of the tidal volumes and driving pressure, meaning if we optimize the PEEP to prevent adelect trauma, we may inadvertently be causing overdistension in some of these patients. And so we, may, we have probably have to really think about the, the two in, in concert with each other and not just be setting PEEP alone, but also thinking about um, how the effects of the PEEP then impact the changes we might need to make on the tidal volumes to impact the driving pressure as well. The EPVET2 reanalysis, I think, is just that. It's, it's a compelling reanalysis, but doesn't really tell us anything definitive about how to, to carry forward and is, is provides more fodder for future research rather than any definitive findings that impact clinical care right now. Thanks so much, Elias. I know this this last hour has been um, full of a lot of pearls, I know, for, for those listening today. Um, so many things that I've learned today. And the great thing about this is that I can go back and listen to it again to make sure that I don't miss anything. And I want to end with one, one final question. And I'm going to start with you, Roy. One takeaway point for learners to remember about PEEP. Whatever method we use to set PEEP needs to be practical. If it requires specialized equipment, then it's time consuming, and especially if it's lacking convincing data to say this is the way to do it, nobody will do it. Driving pressure is easy to measure. Uh, It takes a few seconds to measure driving pressure. And we have a study that says if you can reduce driving pressure, it might reduce mortality. So my take-home message here is get something started like using the PEEP FIO2 table and then adjust PEEP from there using driving pressure. Uh, Serena, anything to wrap up with? Oh, goodness. Uh, I think a a lot of amazing points to remember from here. I think the two things that I'll, I'll take away, one is that, as we've said, PEEP is not a static parameter. It's not set or forget. Take the time to go to the bedside, fiddle around with the vent, see how you can help your patient. And the second thing is that if you uh, get to spend an hour listening to smart people, you should take advantage of it. 
I agree. That's uh, the whole point of the podcast. <laughs> so I, I totally agree. Todd, what about you? Yeah, I think uh, Roy and Serena said some really, really vital stuff there. Uh, I, I will, and this is a little off of the peep realm, but I will say that uh, I'm still amazed at the number of people who uh, are using tidal volumes that aren't six mils per kilo or in that range. The the fastest and easiest way to reduce driving pressure is actually get your tidal volume in line with what we know to be beneficial. And so, you know, the first thing I do whenever I walk in a room, uh, and it's protocolized in my institution, so I don't catch it very often, but occasionally I'll find somebody who has a tidal volume of 700 cc's and it'll be like, what are we doing here? And, you know, immediately changing the tidal volume is the answer to that patient before I do anything with the PEEP. And, and I think, you know, Serena didn't want to be as blunt as I am sometimes, but you actually have to pay attention to your patients uh, and you have to pay attention to them over the course of time. So you're going to have to spend time at the bedside and at the ventilator uh, to figure out what the right thing for them at that time in their illness is. I love that. I always say to the residents, ICU medicine is a bedside sport. Elias, any final words as we wrap up? Just that um, I think... This can be one of the most fun aspects of what we do for clinical care is trying to understand the unique characteristics of our patient. And so while it can be time consuming to a certain degree, it's I think it's worth the time because it really provides the the interest in our patients and the, the personalization that is required to really provide the, the best care for them. Um, and I, I find this to be one of the most fun things that I do, which is not just for the clinical care, but also teaching it at the bedside. And it's something that everyone getting comfortable with. and and learning how to uh, to spend the time that's needed for our patients really improves the care overall and, and also improves the, the quality of our uh, enjoyment of clinical care as well. David, let me let me say one thing, and I think, you know, this is be one of the downsides, I think, of COVID was, at least in my institution, it discouraged people from going to the bedside of the patient because you had to gown up and you had to put on PPE, and it wasn't just as easy as walking in the room and turning a dial. But it was one of the things that we enforced here pretty early on was this is important for patient care. And yes, it means you're going to have to spend an extra five minutes getting in gear and going into the room, but you still need to do it and you still need to do it on a regular basis. It's not a 8 a.m. rounds. We do it and then we're done for the day. Uh, you know, you have to pay attention. It's as you said, it's a bedside sport, even when you have to gown up to get get to the playing field. Yeah, that's a great point. And I feel like we've all seen those effects of, of, of COVID has had on our clinical care. So yeah, thanks you for pointing that out. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for coming on. This was a great, great session. We really appreciate your time. Uh, and thanks for being here. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks. This was fun and educational. So.